namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Buddhang damang sangang namasami. So on the, on the way over here, I was um, trying to figure out what to talk about tonight. So there were um, five topics, and so we had a conversation in the car. And the topic that won was um, n- navigating no man's land. And uh, I don't know that I have a monopoly on the department, but I certainly feel that I have got a corner of the market at the moment. <laughs> you know, I, I, left, um, I left England two years ago and came back to this country. And when I, when I left, my, my decision to leave um, was, was preempted by some, some politics that had gone slightly skittlywampus. And it had been a community that I had been deeply embedded in for 20 years. And it became clear after a quite an extended process, no can do. So I decided to leave England. And when I decided to leave England, there was nothing that I was leaving to or for or with. There was no funds, there was no organization, there was no support, there was no benefactor. There was just a conviction that I absolutely had to go and the faith that I could take one step in front of me at a time and see what would happen. And by the time I actually ended up landing in the state and I settled in Colorado, There was an organization, there was an invitation, there was a place for me to stay, and there was enough money so that there wasn't absolute total panic about how do you live as an alms mendicant without holding funds cannot be a a kind of a, a total burden on everybody you're around. And so things unfolded, and... One of the things that has been part of my journey over these last few years, and in fact, a lot of my journey over my life as a, as a, as a contemplative and my life as a nun, is that I've gone through periodic periods of time where what has been familiar has um, changed shape dramatically. And I would venture to say that nobody's got a monopoly on that market. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's part of the human predicament. We walk through something and all of a sudden, you know, our territory is just vastly different. You know, whether it's all of a sudden realizing one is not heterosexual or realizing that the family of origin is maybe not the people that one feels the most affinity with or recognizing that the life goals that one has are not actually the ones that are going to serve. Or, you know, times where things feel like 
there's a lot of disillusion and not a lot of clarity about what to do. And so I know that as an external reality, you know, where the outside things have shifted, and I know that as an internal experience where there are times in practice where I cannot locate myself by the definitions that I have been used to, where the the veils of who I have identified myself to be are falling away, and there isn't anything that's coming in to take their place. And so one finds oneself in an in-between zone where what was old is no longer what is serving or relevant or what one can be identified with or relate to. And yet where one is going is not at all clear. So when I left England, I had been part of this community and very grateful for the enormous richness of what unfolded being part of this community a community of nuns connected to a community of monks. And this community had been alive and growing and flourishing for 30 years, and I'd been part of it for 20. And then I wasn't part of it anymore. And I don't have metaphor imagery that describes what it's like being embedded in a community and then walking out the door. It's not like getting a divorce. It's like being transported to another planet or having a body transplant. I mean, it's like, it is, there's very little that I can think of that gives an accurate representation of the somatic experience of what that is like. It's really strong. And yet, where I ended up in Colorado Springs was in this little place next to the Garden of the Gods. And I have an affinity with nature. So I would go and hang out on those rocks. And those rocks are 250 million year old rocks. So the story with those rocks is is that we're now on the third set of Rocky Mountains. Those were part of the first set of Rocky Mountains. Okay, and there's a there's a vein of them that goes all across Colorado, and there's a spectacular manifestation of them right where I was living. So it would take me 10 minutes, and I was on these rocks. And they would hold me. And so the enormous variety of feelings and sensations and body experiences as my system was trying to um, acclimate to so much change and dislocation was profoundly supported by these rocks because they could handle anything. (laughs) It didn't matter how intense it was. It was nothing for them. Nothing. And so I would run. (laughs) And I would spend hours And I would press my back into them and I would have as much contact with them as I could and I would walk through them and I would spend as much time as I could with the rocks. And the rocks were like the reminder of what it is to totally relax and receive everything exactly as it is. 
Now, one of the things that happened as soon after I got close to this little hermitage, which was by the rocks, was I met the um, the against the stream folks in in Denver, which was a story in and of itself. There were four people who attended a day-long retreat that I was doing, and they came up and said hello. Now, I don't know why, but I somehow managed to 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 um, find a kind of comfort zone with people who had tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> so tattooed people for me were like scary, you know. And here are all these tattooed people who came up, and I could see in two seconds their radiance, you know. And I thought, you know. What's the deal, you know? <laughs> and they came afterwards to a uh, a blessing that I gave, an almsgiving ceremony at the Hermitage when we were when, we, when I was just moving in. And they came with a truckload of things, and I thought, I don't know what's going on. What is going on? Who are these people? <laughs> and one of them came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know. Um, what didn't you get that you needed that was on your list? And I looked at him and I thought, how does he even know to ask me that question, you know? And so he pestered me until I told him everything. <laughs> and the next week he came back with a truckload full of everything that I'd asked through the snow and offered. Now, there was no group that was supporting me. This group were the only people who were actually interested in what was happening for me, okay? So the heart connection that I felt was not a kind of, well, it's just nice to hang out and see these people. It was like they wanted to make sure that I was okay, that I had food, that I was warm, that I had what I needed. And so one of the things that happens when one is navigating such massive amounts of change and dislocation is that when one feels received or seen or responded to by a community, that they are interested in looking out for you and have your best interests at heart, it makes it feel like you don't have to do it all by yourself. Like you are in a field that is benevolent and you can trust that. So I respond very powerfully to nature And so being in an incredible, powerful nature place was tremendously supportive. But I wouldn't have done that without a group of people who were interested in looking out after me. And as it turned out, it was a group of punks. They had decided when they met me that they were going to adopt me as their project. And they took that on board in a really serious way. So one needs ground, and part of that ground is one's own body, of learning how to relax and learning how to allow attention to move through the whole body. Because in navigating this kind of change, there's also all kinds of body stuff that is also emerging. Trauma is releasing, and all kinds of other things are releasing. And when trauma is present and releasing, it needs to be attended to with enormous care. It doesn't need pressure, and it absolutely doesn't need concentration. It needs responsiveness. It needs kindness. 
It needs the ability to learn how to relax and how to feel where one feels peaceful and at ease and to allow the peacefulness and easefulness that one feels to support and hold the things that are shaking. One needs to be tethered to one's own goodness, to remember one's own aspiration, and to be able to allow the mind to move into places of stillness where one isn't able to conceptualize or map what is actually happening. There's something that happens, and I don't know exactly what it is, but there's been a couple times when I feel I felt like I was at, you know, the edge of my tether. You know, that for whatever reason, it was like I wasn't going to be able to sustain things longer in a, in a particular way. And part of that was because of the isolation or the challenge I was navigating and having so many things that I was having to hold and not having enough resource to help me with it or whatever. And I was just at another one of these places and, you know, I went to um, to an ordination because I wanted to be supportive because it was going to be the first ordination that was going to happen in this country. It was going to be a, a, a Theravadan Bhikkhuni ordination. And I don't know if you've been up with the kind of mad politics that have been going on, but Full ordination for nuns has not been something that's been available in the Buddhist tradition. And just recently there have been opportunities where nuns have been able to have this full ordination. So I was going to observe this ordination. And I went and I went and paid respects to the senior nun who was going to be the preceptor of the ordination to let her know that I had arrived and I was happy to help support and and setting up so that I could observe, because I wasn't fully ordained, which is another story. But we don't need to go there right now. (laughs) And she, in her kind of loving and very peaceful way, asked me or mentioned that I hadn't responded to two emails that she'd sent. And I thought, what were they about? I don't remember two emails that you sent that I didn't respond to. So she mentioned one of them, and she mentioned the other one was that she wanted to include me in the ordination itself. Okay. Now, without having any familiarity with monastic culture, it would be hard to get a sense of what this means. All right. I have lived in a monastery for 20 years, and never have I not only seen this happen, but never have heard that such a thing was ever possible, that this kind of ordination would be given with this kind of notice, right? And so this was representative of the kind of conundrum of what I was trying to navigate. And having stayed with the uncertainty and attended to things as they were arising. And out of just a willingness to be a good sport and, 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 and share in the joy of other people's ordination, I came to view it. And what she was saying was is that I could now be included in it. Okay? And I went into total pandemonium. <laughs> 
because it's a different ordination and we had spent 20 years talking about how complicated it was and how difficult it was to live it and, and all of the complex things around it and whether I should or shouldn't or whether it can, it cannot. And, and all of a sudden it's being offered. So I said, well, what I needed to do was to really, you know, just be with myself in the process and go into the forest and see what happened. So I went into a ring red uh, a ring of redwood trees, a, a grove, and I sat still, and I let my mind become quiet. And, you know, immediately there was the pandemonium, and then just underneath the pandemonium there was a dropping into this stillness. And the stillness was just suffused with this tremendous joy, and there was no thought. Just peace and stillness and joy and no thought. And so I, I pulled my attention back to a place where I could navigate the concerns that I had that had been part of the last 20 years of being in this monastic community and examined each one against my intuition. And with every one of them, there was a sense of there is going to be a way forward. So I decided there was no obstacle for me participating in this ordination. And so I went to the preceptor 10 minutes before the rehearsal was about to begin. And I said, yes, you can count me in on this. Okay? But I didn't actually know what was going to happen. I went through the ordination, but I didn't know whether I was going to be able to survive, whether there would in fact be the support. And so time and time and time and time again, through various different ways, through life circumstance, through changing circumstance, through people coming or going or support systems emerging or disintegrating, I've been in the situation of, I don't know. I just honestly don't know. But I trust that somehow through hanging out here, a way will emerge. Now, one of the things that Asher read in introducing me, which was very lovely, no one's ever introduced me that way, was the vision of awakening truth, okay? So I've been part of a meditation process for 30 years and this community for 20 years, and this community is kind of like, had been known as like the high-end, um, high-end monastic community. This is the monastic community of Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumido, okay? And I can speak at length about the enormous value of monastic life. In the lay community, which is mostly how people are practicing in this country, there's very little exposure to monastics or to monastic life. It's like, you know, a pink pink striped zebra, you know? It's like absolutely foreign. There's no place for it or no concept of it or no sense or feeling of how on earth this might have value or, or usefulness. And for me, I can see a lot of value and potency in a lifestyle that is so focused on bringing the factors of the path together so that one is like living in a spiritual cyclotron, you know, where things are potentized both in terms of what one is doing, why one is doing it, and who one's hanging out with while one is doing it. And what happens when you live like that? 
as well as what it's like living with renunciation. You know, renunciation is like a bad word, you know? Nobody wants renunciation. (laughs) But renunciation really illuminates where one's happiness can be found. Because if one's hands are tied about how much one can get one's needs met through the external world, then you have got to find an alternative. So it drives the point home. It's in your face. It's designed to show you where you're attached in order to illuminate how to let go into something which is much more satisfying. But alongside the beauty, alongside the richness, alongside the potency of the teachings and the example of people who've been living this way has been a tradition that has gotten encrusted in cultural values that are not relevant. We know they don't work. We know prejudice does not work, is not furthering, is not liberating, is not something to support, is not something to condone. And so again, you know, once again, I'm in a situation where it is clear that what is needed is to bring the potency, the essence, the liberating qualities of this into our world in a way where we are no longer living according to cultural values that no longer apply. But how on earth do you do that? This is a tradition with monastic codes and ways and protocols. And yet there's the sense that it not only can be done, but it has to be done. It has to be that we can live this life in a way that is authentic and true and congruent, that makes sense in this day and age, that's not encrusted with stuff that doesn't make sense, that's harmful, that we know no longer serves. And so the way to do it is to move back and forth between the fundamental core principles of what has been established and set down and move in and out of one's somatic reading of them to get a felt body sense of what is needed to do that myself, to do that with others, and to do that with a group of people who can understand the importance of why this needs to happen. I have taught retreats for many years now, and as since I've been a nun, mostly the retreats that I teach are monastic retreats. And it's often the case that at the end of a monastic retreat, people come afterwards and they have words to share about their experience in relationship to other retreats that they've sat. Now, one of the retreats that I have sat is a monastic retreat at IMS. Do you know all about? Do you all know IMS? IMS is a retreat center that's been established for 30 years. It's in Barrie, Massachusetts, and. They have a really excellent program there. When I was teaching it, 
we were nuns, we were a group of nuns teaching it. And it was interesting, the feedback about, you know, differences, comparisons, and the sense of how nuns bring qualities to the teachings that are different than monks, for example. And the difference that people feel between the monastic retreats and the lay retreats. And so, you know, they would be waxing lyrical about one thing or another. And I said, what is it? Be articulate. Tell me what is actually different. Can you explain it? And what they said was that what their experience was is, is that when they were doing monastic retreats with the monastics, there was a sense of being immersed in a field. And that field continued beyond the immediacy of the presence of the individuals there. And what they are describing is what my experience is of living in a monastery. A monastery creates a field. And the field nourishes the people beyond the actual physical location of who is living there. And so sometimes people would only come to the monastery once a year because they were living far away and they couldn't get there. When they would think about it, they would think about it and that would nourish them. And so a monastery, like against the stream, is a space that people can gather. But different than against the stream is is that, that diversity includes people who are keeping different levels of precepts. And so the, the sense of what I feel is needed is to m- move from a, a, a tradition that has had some elements of cultural embeddedness into our contemporary world in a way that serves the people who are interested to wake up. And yet doing this is another experience of navigating no man's land. Of starting with fundamental principles, staying in connection with people who are community, who have affinity, who feel simpatico, moving back and forth between one's somatic resonance of what is correct and what is not correct, and seeing what emerges over time. There's no map. There's lots of maps for certain things, but there's no map about how it needs to evolve now. And yet, when you feel the field, it allows you to relax into something that is tremendously supportive. And one of the things about the field that's so supportive is is, is that People living in that field can develop the confidence to call bullshit. Okay? And so each of us, we've got our own blind spots. We've got the things that we're good at and the things that we don't see. And when you are living in a field that is committed to this level of waking up, when it is based in kindness, when it is based in friendship, when the basis is supporting what is awakening, what is wholesome, then it's possible to allow people in, under one's skin, to be able to hear their tenderness and kindness 
to let them stop us short when we're looping in our self-disparaging, self-negating, self whatever we do. And they say, time out. It's not okay for you to treat yourself like that in front of me. I don't accept that. And then when the trust gets a little bit stronger, then not only can we stop other people's negative habits that they are enacting towards themselves, but we can also sometimes speak up when the negative habits are enacted towards others and say, no, there's another alternative here. Think again. So when we cultivate a field like that, what we do is we create an oasis that's not based in dogma, that's based in aliveness, in vitality, in responsiveness. It's based in what is relevant and authentic. For me, my capacity to stay present with that is directly related to my capacity to navigate no man's land. Because I am constantly having to come back into a place where I don't have a map. And there are periods of time where I don't know what's next. So, you know, I had plans. I I had a train ticket to go up to Vancouver, British Columbia. I was supposed to get on the train tomorrow. The day that I arrived in L.A., my plans had totally shifted. I come to L.A., and I have no idea what's going to happen next, you know. And so it's like, you know, on all levels, there's a sense of, I don't know, not sure, uncertain, what's right, what feels right, what's needed right now. Is this coming from desire? Is this coming from clarity? Is this coming from stillness? Is this coming from restlessness? How do I know where it's coming from? If I don't have a somatic read on my own body senses, I don't have a measure of where to understand these things are coming from. They're just loops going through my head. So when we were talking this evening in the car about which of the topics I should talk about, people said, well, no man's land seems a little bit relevant for you right now. Why don't you talk about that? But the joy that I feel is, is, is that in the past, there would have been times when this level of uncertainty and dislocation would have been deeply agitating. I remember there was a time when I was also navigating something similar, and people asked me where I came from, and it would activate a panic attack. <laughs> you know, what do you say? <laughs> And then as I worked with the whole thing more and more and more and got more comfortable in this process of just wandering and not knowing where I was going to be, you know, I had a three-day plan that was about as much as I could manage. Then I began to feel the lightness and the humor and the delight of it. But in fact, in many ways, that's actually more accurate than, you know, the five-year plan, you know. We can have ideas about how things are going to be, but the reality is is, is that from one day to the next, we really don't know what's going to happen. So the path of cultivating 
navigating no man's land is really developing a wayfarer's mind. We're not interested in attaining certain states. We're not interested in having special experiences. We're interested in developing the strength and the qualities, the characteristics, the friendship networks, the support systems, the ground, to be able to respond to whatever's arising. And whether it's clear or unclear, whether you've got a plan or there's no plan, where there's a clear sense of who you are or your sense of who you are is being dismantled. This wayfarer's mind has the ability to embrace whatever is arising in the same way that this metta or benevolence or friendliness or kindness, it makes no exceptions inwardly or outwardly. When one feels that, there is nothing that is excluded. Maybe this is a good point to stop the Dhamma talk and to invite whatever questions or comments or discussion that this has evoked in you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.